This is episode number 52 with Allegra Stein, how to take action on your big idea. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to give you the tools to live a high-performance life. All it takes to get something in motion is having the courage to say it out loud. A lot of people are sitting on ideas of things they want to try or do that they don't even say. It's a big idea, but it feels really little. But when they say it, it's like cracking open a picture of Geo just like opening up and all of a sudden it's like everything's shining out. Today's guest, Allegra Stein, is all about moving the needle so people can take action on their big ideas. She understands that it's scary and exciting to get started, so much so that she coined her own term, terexidifying. And I definitely can relate with that term. There's a lot of things that I do that are terexidifying, including things I've done in my business and also on the bike. Can you guys relate? Allegra loves the blank whiteboard, a place you can talk and write out your ideas to create continuity and clarity. I also have a whiteboard in my office after being part of her Facebook group, and I like putting all of my ideas out because it's really good to get a bird's eye view of what you're actually trying to do. She specializes in supporting women to get out of their own way to take action on their big idea and even help them figure out what their next direction should be. There's a lot of times where we know that we're stuck and we don't know where to go next, and it's just helpful to have somebody to talk to to help you figure out and get clarity around that. Don't worry, though. If you're a guy, there's a lot of value in this show as well, as her knowledge extends way past gender. Allegra herself has had an interesting life from traveling in Nepal to serving in the Peace Corps in Bulgaria and then teaching science in New York. The path has led her to her impactful work now as a life coach. In this episode, you'll learn about the three tools she uses in her job, a mirror, a flashlight, and pom-poms, how micro-actions lead to bigger actions, how to make a decision and how to deal with overwhelm. And overwhelm is something that I have to face on a daily basis, I'm sure you guys do too. And she has some brilliant metaphors that I love to help you see the forest from the trees, to create more calmness in your day and give you more clarity amongst the super highway of thoughts in our brain. Thanks so much for listening, you guys. It was so cool to be at USA Marathon Nationals in Arkansas and to get to meet a bunch of you guys who came up to me and told me about how you love the podcast. And it's so neat to be able to meet people in person who are actually listening to the show. If you're enjoying the show, the best possible thing you can do is just to tell your friends about it. Word of mouth is highly influential and it's interesting. I'm actually reading a book about it, so I'm hoping to get that author on the show at a later date. But thanks to all of you who have left reviews. There's like 86 reviews on the U.S. iTunes store and I read every single one of them. So I really appreciate that, you guys. Thank you so much. Do you want to go on the ultimate mountain bike vacation with me? Well, now's your chance. October 4th through the 7th, we're going to be doing an awesome retreat in Bend, Oregon called the Sonia Looney Experience. And it's going to be three days of riding and there's going to be guides. So there's going to be all different ability levels. So if you're a beginner, if you're a seasoned rider, everybody is welcome. So don't worry about that. And we're going to be doing other fun things like yoga. I'm going to record a live podcast. I'm going to do one day of speaking. There's going to be a brewery tour. 
hotels and food are included. All you have to do is show up. So go to my website, sonyalooney.com, click retreats in the menu and sign up. It's limited to only 12 people and we have people signing up every day. So thanks so much, you guys. And I hope to see you in Bend, Oregon. Big thanks and special shout out to our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. It's been really neat. I've been going on a lot of road trips, mostly going back and forth from Vancouver and Squamish with my bikes on the back of my car. And I have the Sherpa, which is a hitch mounted rack. And it's been really just awesome to have a rack that's really easy to use. I hate it whenever you're trying to figure out how a rack works. And I feel like the same thing happens with bike pumps. It's really hard to figure out how things work sometimes. So having a rack where you can just roll up, put your bike on, drive away with no worries, no hassle. That's the best thing about Kuat Racks. All right, let's get into this episode with Allegra Stein. Allegra Stein, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. It's so fun. We've connected through Facebook and I'm a part of your Facebook group, Campfire Conversations, and that's been really cool to see a bunch of the things and topics that all these awesome women are talking about. Yeah, I love that Facebook group is a really a great space for someone who kind of wants to get to know me a little bit better. I really, it has a spirit of connection and conversation and, and exploration. And I just enjoy all the different topics that come up and just sharing ideas there and seeing what questions come up as a, as a result of it. So Campfire Conversations is, is a fun space for me. Yeah, I think the realness of it for people, because like a lot of times people follow social media accounts and you don't get the full story. And I, I find that being a part of a Facebook group actually gives people the space where they can just kind of not have to put on a show of any kind. They can just kind of say what's on their mind. Yeah, I agree with it. You know, I have a an Instagram account where I really like to post things very organically. I'm just like, oh, I've had an idea. I'm going to post it on Instagram. But I was looking for a platform that would allow for a little bit more discourse. And I feel like the Facebook groups allow for that just because we're in the habit of, you know, typing out our thoughts and sharing what we think. So I really see them as being parallel and a chance to kind of when someone's interested in the stuff that I'm up to, I'm like, you should check me out on Instagram or join this Facebook group because it's really a place to explore and play. So yeah, speaking about writing out your ideas, is there a big difference between doing it by hand? Like journaling for me is something that's really helpful, but I hardly ever make the time to do it. But like people type their ideas or they handwrite their ideas. And have you found a difference? You know, it's really interesting. It's funny that you asked this because I have always had this story that I'm not a very good journaler. I've just never really enjoyed journaling. But when I was younger, like a teenager, writing letters was like my therapy. Like I would write letters and not send them. You know, it just became my place to process. But then as I got older, I kind of fell out of that habit. And then technology showed up and everything became digital. And I've tried other formats, you know, like five sentences a day, you know, they're like the bullets of a day, or there's this amazing website called 750words.com, 750words.com. And it's just this awesome kind of space where you can journal and the idea is to type 750 words each day. But over the past two and a half, three weeks now, maybe four, I committed to this practice of morning pages. And morning pages are, do you know them? Mm-hmm. But the, the yeah. audience might not. So, so let's keep going. Yeah. So morning pages, it's, it's inspired by a book by Julia Cameron called The Artist's Way. And The Artist's Way is like this 12 week series 
it's a book, but it's divided into 12 weeks. That's really meant to help you kind of re-emerge your creative side and, and re-explore your creativity. And it's not just for like visual artists or fine artists. It's really just about tapping back into creativity. And the foundation of the artist's way are these morning pages, which is essentially you wake up every morning. And one of the first things you do is write out three pages, longhand stream of consciousness, whatever it is. And when I first started doing that, it was hard for me. I mean, I have even today, there are lines where I'm just like, what am I going to write now? Blah, blah, blah. I don't know what's coming next. But I'm, I'm really exercising that muscle and just practicing enough for it to become easy. I could share more about that whole idea of practice if you're interested, but I've really committed to it and I feel really good about that. So now every morning I'm waking up and I putter around for a little bit and I have my cup of coffee and I sit down and I just start writing and I let it be super messy. I never go back and read it. I don't let anyone else read it. It's literally just scribbled, just stuff. But to get in that practice of like letting ideas come through me, processing my own thoughts, figuring out beliefs that I'm holding on to that aren't helping me. It's an exercise I'm actually kind of assigning to all of my clients these days because because I find it so valuable for slowing down and kind of, you know, if normally we're like this and I'm shaking up like a snow globe at the moment. <laughs> see. Hey, that's my brain. Like, if, yeah, if normally we're like this, morning pages is one of the tools that can help all of this settle down and help mm -hmm. the snow settle in the snow globe so we have space to think more clearly. Well, let's like make a challenge for the listeners. Um, three pages might be a bit intimidating for people. So let's just say one page. Let's all of us say yes right now and commit to doing one page a day for one week and go on social media and tag us whenever you're doing it. Like go in your stories and like, let's make a challenge and I'll commit to it too, because I think that that would be really helpful. So that would be awesome. So if you guys are listening, say yes. And we want you to try this and I'm going to do it with you. Okay. I, one's good. But if you really want to go for it, I still say go for three. I think, I, think, I think actually what might happen, though, is I think that people will write three or more. But it's that activation energy to actually totally. do three. Because I think in people's minds, it's like, well, that's kind of a lot. And I'm going to get writer's cramp. And what if I don't have enough to say for three pages? And like, how do? And I think a good question is like, can we come up with a prompt to get people started? Because like a blank page can be intimidating because they don't even know what where to start and what question to answer. I mean, there are, and I've done this too, like there are some mornings where like, what do I write about? So as far as prompts go, if you can get your hands on a copy of The Artist's Way, there's a lot of uh, structure within each week that she encourages you to write about. So for example, describe a time when you felt discouraged from being creative. What did you love to do as a child that you're not doing now? She has this one exercise where it's like, imagine your life went in five different directions. What are you doing in each one of those directions, right? So one of mine was, well, in one an alternate life, I would have been a zoo veterinarian, you know? So those kinds of things, you can go online and Google like artist's way or morning pages prompts and just find a list of prompts to just get you started. I think the reason why three pages is good is because you're right. Like we get to the end of one page and we think I've got nothing. And so we stop. But the practice is almost sitting with nothing and listening mm -hmm. and waiting and seeing what comes through and not being afraid to write it down and see where that takes us. So 
That said, I'm a big believer. I love that you said activation energy. It makes me think of chemistry. <laughs> like, because I'm a nerd too, uh, like a science yeah. nerd. <laughs> I, uh, yay, I love it. Me too. Um, and I'm a big fan of like micro action. You know, that's one of my things is like, if three pages is too much to even get started, give yourself permission to just do one. Give yourself permission to just do one sentence. Give yourself permission to just like sit down with a pen and paper and like scribble a line out because your willingness to do that kind of sends a message back to your brain. Like, Oh, you can like, Oh, you did it. You started. So. Yeah. I think the hardest part is like creating space in your life to do those things that you want to do. Like for me, another issue is core work. Like I just don't make time to do that type of stuff. And I I try and break it down so much to say, well, just do like a plank for like 10 seconds. Mm. And I still just don't do it. And I think sometimes the desire is just not there to actually do it because it, so yeah, like, I know you work with a lot of amazing women and a lot of clients. And I think that probably one of the topics that comes up is, well, I, I can't just commit to getting started. So like, what would you say to people who really want to get started with some sort of habit or action, but are just having trouble making a commitment to it? Well, so that becomes a big part of the conversation is what we're committed to. Mm-hmm. And it's in those moments when conversations can get, I call them high flame. It's something I learned from one of my teachers. It's like, that's when coaching can really get high flame. When I can say things that make me nervous, I can bring things to the table that really turn up the heat in the conversation. Because when someone says to me, I really want to be doing it, I'm just not doing it. What I usually come back with, well, then you don't really want to be doing it. That there's a commitment issue there because you and all of your listeners know what it's like to be committed to something. You are all committed to something, whatever it might be, where where it doesn't matter if you're sick or you're tired or you're hungry or it's early in the morning that you make it happen. The metaphor I use for that is buying a plane ticket. You know, when we buy plane tickets, and I have videos out there just about this whole idea, when you (laughs) click buy on a plane ticket, we make it to the airport. Like, if it's two in the morning, if our kids are sick, if we're sick, if there's snow, we do what we have to do to make it to that flight. And that's the feeling of commitment. And if someone says, Oh, can you meet me for coffee? I can't because I got to do this thing. And if our brain says, Oh, you just want to stay in bed. I can't, I, I I'm committed to doing this thing. And we all know what that feeling is. So that point in a conversation when someone says, well, I really want to, but I'm not, that get, that just becomes a really interesting place to dance. Then it becomes like, well, what if you're, choo- it's, you're choosing not to? And part of my job is to bring my clients back into the place of choice, to really just say, you have a choice in what you're choosing to do with your time and your life, and you're choosing not to do this thing. And that's totally okay with me. There's zero judgment. But isn't that really interesting that you keep saying you want it, but you're still choosing not to? So what, what's going on there? Let's dive in there. Yeah. And like, I think a lot of times people's desire might not be from an internal expectation. It might be from an Mm -hmm. external expectation. And that's why they think they should be doing that. And I think that really, I mean, people respond to expectations differently. Yeah. Um, But, but yeah, I think like some of the things that we do is because we think we should be doing it, not because we really want to be doing it. Oh, definitely. I mean, whenever I'm talking, I'm always, when I'm listening to someone, I'm always listening for like keywords or phrases or just things ping me, you know, there's this energy about it. And whenever someone starts saying, well, I should, I should, I should, I'm, I always stop and, you know, stop shooting on yourself and should just feels awful. So what if instead of should you could, 
And I'll kind of interject. I'll be like, well, you could. And I'll say, you're right, I could. And it changes the whole energy of things when you're willing to recognize all the shoulds you're living under and say, and kind of switch it to like, well, I could do this. I could do that. I could do this. It's actually one of my favorite coaching exercises is helping people make could lists. Mm -hmm. What are the things you could do? doesn't mean you have to. doesn't mean there's any expectation that you do any of it, but let's give it some air. Let's have some divergent thinking and really just open up all the possibilities of what your options are without that pressure or expectation to do any of it. And it's amazing what people will come up with. <laughs> all of a sudden, they'll be like, I don't know what to do. Well, what could you do? And then we've got a list of 10 or 20 things. It's really exciting. That's so cool. So I want to talk about coaching a little bit, like life coaching. Okay. Like, I think that there's a bit of confusion out there of what a life coach is, what they do, and how that's different than hiring like a clinical therapist. So can you elaborate on that? Sure. So the way that I see it, and first of all, there's no wonder that there's confusion about life coaching, because if I tell 10 people I'm a podiatrist, I love using the podiatrist metaphor, there's a pretty good sense of what a podiatrist does. They're going to help you with your feet. They're going to help you with your walking and your running and issues of your ankles, right? But if I tell 10 people I'm a life coach, I get 10 different responses. Some people are like, oh my gosh, I want to talk to you. Some people are like, no thanks, no interest. Some people think I'm, you know, there's just so many different stories because life coaching is a pretty broad industry mm -hmm. as I see it. As far as the difference in therapy, the way that I see it again is therapy is really a chance to explore what happened before this moment that really created who we are. You know, like what happened in our past? Where are our stories coming from? Why are we thinking what we're thinking? Really diving into those structural foundational places that have created who we are today. And it's really a tool and an invaluable tool to kind of bring us back to our innate mental health. Coaching takes starts from that place of really having tapped back into that sense of mental health and starts looking forward. All right, what is it you want to create moving forward? What is the thing you want to make happen next? So it's more of this kind of present to future looking partnership. And I consider my coaching a partnership with my clients. You know, it, it's always interesting to get context for someone of why they think what they think. But if when I'm talking with something, someone, all we're talking about is like, well, what do you want to make happen next? What's in your way of making that happen? That's really exciting as well. Yeah, I think the power of having a coach and someone that you just feel comfortable talking to is super helpful. And I think also that in some of the clinical scenarios, like clinical therapists can help you in a lot of ways, but they also can deal with like more extreme cases. They're trained sure. to do that. And I kind of feel like, and this is just, this is just my perspective. So tell yeah. me if I'm wrong. I feel like life coaches might have different backgrounds than like a clinical therapist. And if Most you, definitely. like, if you want help with your business, like maybe you work with a life coach who specializes in business, for example. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I have zero hesitation of like referring people towards therapy as a direction. If I get any sense that that would be of service to them, like I am a huge proponent of really finding those partners and taking advantage of the value and the beauty and sitting down with someone who's going to help you gain a much deeper understanding of how you work and why things are the way they are. And it's definitely different skill sets, different approaches. And I think they're a beautiful partnership hand in hand. I had a woman who I had a client actually who connected me with her therapist 
And her therapist reached out to me and was like, can we talk? And she was so lovely. She's like, I think it's so important to have this team of people who can work with you on such different things. And in so many different ways, like we should all be supporting one another in these practices that we're doing. And, um, I couldn't have agreed more. It was a, it was a incredibly like pleasant and reassuring and awesome conversation to have with her. Yeah. And I also think that like years ago, it was a bit taboo or just people just didn't talk about their therapist or their coach. And now I I think it's a lot more common for people to be more open about, Hey, I actually like have a life coach or a therapist and there's actually nothing wrong with that. Oh, most definitely. I think it's definitely becoming more understood as a practice and like as something to, you know, whenever someone tells me that they're working with someone in any capacity, I was like, that's awesome. Like, I've talked to people who don't want to work with me, like for whatever reason, it's not the right fit, but they choose someone else. And then they say, oh, I'm, I'm going to work with them. And I'm like, that's amazing. Congratulations. Like mm-hmm. just to acknowledge that willingness, because you said something interesting, like, oh, it can be, you know, talking with a life coach can be kind of a comfortable place. And the truth of the matter is, is that coaching, when you're with a coach that really is going to hold a much higher vision for you than you have for yourself can actually be quite uncomfortable. Mm. And a lot of conversations I have with my clients move into that place of discomfort because that's where growth is, right? If we wanted to be comfortable, we would just talk to our friends and our family and the people who kind of reassure us of our stories. But my job is actually to not go into the story, to not believe the fear, Mm -hmm. to not believe the thing that you think is holding you back, to not buy into however it is that you think you're seeing your life and your ability to make something happen or not. And that's, that's again, where it can get edgy. Mm -hmm. And that's where it's really fun to work with people who are coachable for lack of a better word, like to have that willingness. And for any of your listeners who are even thinking about like working with a coach in some way is you really want to go into it just completely open. And what if I'm wrong? Like what if the way that I'm thinking about my life, my business, my work, my whatever isn't right. And that can be, again, uncomfortable, but also transformative. Yeah. So I want to ask you about decision-making because like number one, figuring out, should I even work with a coach is a decision, but there's other big decisions in our life that we make to get to that place of discomfort, to make changes, to do the things that we want to do. And it first starts with a decision to actually do it. And I think that there's a lot of decision fatigue that, that goes on because every, every single day we have to make decisions on a billion different things. And those are just like little things. And then when it comes to the big things, sometimes you're just so worn out, it's really hard to actually make a decision. So what advice would you give people who are, maybe they have some really big things they're shuffling around in their mind about a decision. Like what, what are some steps people can take to figure out what they should do? So... This is one of those questions where I love getting specific because mm-hmm. even the idea of decisions generally can just feel so big and broad. So whenever someone says to me, I'm like, well, give me a specific example. But I understand that it's it's different for everybody. I agree with you about decision fatigue. I think oftentimes what happens is that we get into a position of thinking that there's a wrong decision and a right decision. And that if we just think about it hard enough, we will figure out which one is the right one which essentially is code for, if I just think about it enough, I will be able to predict the future. That's kind of what we're we're trying to figure out. Like, well, should I do this or this? Well, which one's going to work out the best? Which one is going to give me the future that I want 
Therefore, I can only know if I can tell the future and none of us can. So there's just this constant tension of, I don't want to pick the wrong one. And that story in and of itself is just a hotbed of, of stress, right? Because mm-hmm. we're trying to decide something that is truly undecidable. We, you will never know. So I come from a position that when it comes to making a decision, there is no wrong choice. That the hardest place to sit in is actually the one of indecision. Because then we're just in our heads. We're up in our stories, but if I do this, 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 and we play out these imagined scenarios that, that we think are going to end in pain. And it's like, we're just in this constant cacophony of, <laughs> of what ifs, what if I do this and it doesn't work out. And whenever I hear that, I'm like, well, why don't let's go find out. A lot of times too, people think when they're going to make a decision that if they're, you know, if, let's imagine you're on a path and you come to two branches And they think, well, what if I choose this one and decide down the road that I don't want to, that I wish I hadn't done that, like this wasn't right for some reason, then I'm going to have to come all the way back to where I started. And it doesn't work that way. It's like an evolutionary tree, right? You're the science person. It's, it never, you never stop moving forward. You never stop taking with you all the knowledge that you have. Yeah, that's a really great point. So it's like, there's never a backward motion. And then I guess my final kind of thought on decisions is, you know, if you think about the best thing in your life right now, the very best thing in your life, you could probably trace it back to the worst decision you think you ever made. (laughs) In some ways. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, think about it. The best things in your life today exist because of a quote unquote bad decision that you made whenever ago. So in that regard, it's a mindset shift. It's a perspective shift that there actually is no bad decision. There's just indecision is almost is a harder place to be in than just saying, I'm going to try and see who I am on the other side of that. And then you realize, oh, I'm, I'm alive today and I'm going to continue moving forward. Yeah, so I'm curious, what, what do you hear in that? I, I think that people are worried about the consequences of their decision. And I really like what you said about when people come to a fork in the road, like they're worried they're going to have to go all the way back the way they came. But really, it's not a step backwards because you learned a lot moving forward to that point. And then you find a different pathway to get to somewhere else where you want to go. But yeah, for me, it's really helpful when I'm making decisions to think about the consequences. Like what's the best and the worst thing that could happen for each scenario? That way you know, because we're always afraid of, most of the time we're afraid of the worst, but sometimes people are like are afraid of success or afraid of what's going to happen. What if this actually works and who am I going to be? But like, I I think that a big problem with decision-making is that people just can't let go of that fear of what could happen and that they're not going to be able to carry on in a way that they want to. Well, and that, that piece of like, they're afraid of what might happen and that they're not going to be able to handle it. And I think that that piece is really critical as well of saying that no matter what happens, I will handle it. So that's another interesting place. Like, why do you think it'll be, you know, this gets really deep into how our thinking works, but when we're imagining a future scenario, right? Like, well, what if I move and I hate it? That's assuming a lot of things. One, it's assuming that what circumstances are going to be like in the next place, but you're also assuming that you know exactly what you're going to be thinking in that place, right? Because because it's all a thinking game. We feel what we think. So we're kind of afraid, if you really get in, really think about it, 
we're afraid of what we might think in the future about a thing that hasn't even happened yet. Mm -hmm. And that's just mind blowing to me when you really break it down. Like, what is it we're afraid of? Well, we're afraid of this thing happening and we're afraid of what we might think in that moment that it's happening because it's our thinking that's going to create our fear. It's our thinking that's going to create our resentment or our anger or our disappointment. And, um, I love those pockets of opportunities to talk to people and teach people really about what our thinking really is and where our feelings are actually coming from and what that fear is, because, you know, that's where the flashlight comes in. It's like, let's take a really good look at this and what we're dealing with. And uh, when you see it clearly, it suddenly doesn't have as much potency. Yeah. Like future you is going to be a different person than today. Exactly. You. And like, it, think about that. Like if you look back even to maybe even a month ago, like the decisions you would make today might be different than they would have made a month ago. But I want to talk about the flashlight because on your website, you say yeah. you have a mirror, a flashlight and a set of pom-poms. Yeah. So, so how do you use those three tools? <laughs> All right. So maybe I'll start with the pom-poms because my favorite moment is when someone tells me about what they really want to do. When they kind of let out that little desire, which maybe feels little, but is actually big. Or they, they kind of say, you know, I'm doing this. I really want to be doing that. Or I just have this idea that I want to make happen and I feel excited about it. That really lights me up because I then want to help them bring that thing to life. Right. Mm -hmm. I consider myself like an idea advocate. And so one of the things that I carry is pom-poms because when my clients or anyone is taking action on things and discovering, I'm the one who's like, you've got this. Like I have so much love and enthusiasm for the women that I work with, as well as just women in my community, you know, who I see doing amazing things. I just want them to keep doing amazing things because we're alive and why not just do cool stuff while we're living. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people like they listen to all the negative chatter. And whenever you want to do something big, a big idea, that's something different than what you've been doing before. A lot of people will say, well, what if it doesn't work? And all these what ifs come up and people aren't supporting you to take that step in that direction. Instead, they're, they're just clouding your judgment, clouding your mind. So really surrounding yourself with people who can give you that push in that right direction can really help create momentum. And I've experienced that in my life. Oh, most definitely. And it's so that's definitely just something I bring in naturally whenever I'm talking with someone about what they want to do. I tell I joke sometimes that I'm either the best or the worst person to tell your ideas to because I'm the best person because I'm like, okay, great. Like you can do that. Why can't you do it? Let's figure out how to make it happen and what's in your way and let's negotiate around all those things. But I'm also the worst person kind of for that exact reason, because you'll come back to me a year later. I'll be like, what's happening with the idea? How's it going? I haven't really started yet. So that's the pom-poms. The flashlight is really digs into the thought work piece of it. Cause I love action and I love reflection. I think both are essential for making things happen, for bringing ideas to life, but doing so in a way that's not like that doesn't drive us crazy. Right? So I like both. And that reflection piece is really where that slowing down and looking at our thinking, I just think is so incredible and fun. So if you can imagine going spelunking, right? I don't know if you've ever been spelunking in caves, but it can be pretty intense and you're going through these dark, you know, passages. And if you can imagine being in a dark cave, you're really scared because you don't know what's around the next corner, right? You can't see anything. It's like, oh, I'm so afraid of it. But if you imagine having a big floodlight turned on, nothing has changed in the cave. 
everything is still exactly the same, but you suddenly can see exactly what's happening. The fear drops away. The judgment drops away. The like, the tension around not knowing. So the flashlight is really about that. This is where these tense moments come up sometimes because someone will be like, no, this is how it is. And I'll turn my flashlight on and say, well, what if that isn't how it is? What if it's not just A or B, but there's, you know, multiple more options down the line that you haven't yet thought of? What if we just turn the, let me turn the flashlight on and show you where you're limiting yourself by your thinking and what could be on the other side of that? So that's where the flashlight comes in. I think that's a really great analogy of the cave and like it's dark and it's everything is the way it is. You just can't see it. So it's anxiety mm -hmm. of not being able to see. And then something else I thought of was if you have your own flashlight, like you get to choose where your focus is. If it's dark, you yeah. get to choose like which direction you want to shine your light. And it just started me. I just started thinking about how important it is to choose what we want to focus on and be in control of that and how what we focus on is our reality. So if you're in a cave yeah. with a light shining on something, well, guess what? That's your reality. And you get to choose yeah. that. No, I love that's an awesome kind of addition to the whole metaphor. I think that's great. And as far as the mirror goes, is that when I'm in partnership with someone, I don't pretend to know the answers for somebody else. I create a space for them to spot the answers that they're looking for. Mm -hmm. So that's what I mean by mirror is, you know, sometimes in a coaching partnership, someone will come to me up in their minds and like wanting to know what to do next. And I, my job is to first calm them down and then to give them the space where they can reflect on what's coming up from within them, mm -hmm. not from me, because I don't know how you best can lead your life. I don't know what your best next decision is, but I can create a conversation in a space where you can slow down enough that you can start to spot those answers for yourself. A metaphor that I really like to use to kind of describe what my coaching partnerships feel like sometimes, because I feel like different things all the time is imagine you're going on a, you're climbing a mountain and you're the hiker. I consider myself like the expedition leader. I'm down at base camp with the walkie talkie. I'm kind of monitoring this big picture. I'm remembering what you want to do, even when you forget it. I'm holding space for you to kind of process decisions, right? You go down one path and then you're like, oh, wait, this didn't turn out the way I thought. What do I do now? I'm panicking. I'm there to help you calm down so that you can just take your backpack off metaphorically and sit down by a fire for a little bit and figure out your next steps. And tying into this whole idea of a mirror, like I'm not on the mountain with you. You're there. You're doing your life. And at the end of the day, you know best which path to follow next. You know best which action to take or not to take. And so my job is never to tell you which one to do, but to remind you that you have that capacity within you already. And it's just about practicing, letting it kind of show up through you. What are some techniques people can use themselves whenever they are panicking? Because you mentioned that when someone's panicking, you help them calm down. Mm. Um, what are some techniques people could apply today? Well, the most <laughs> underutilized and simple suggestion I can give to somebody is to go for a walk. It's to get away from the computer, away from the phone, away from the technology, away from the people, and to go outside and to take advantage of what nature already has to offer you. I think 
I mean, I know you know this very well, what you've been to all these different places in the world and the power of getting outside, there's something quite therapeutic about it. That's free. That doesn't cost anything. That doesn't take any time. And that's out our front door. Even if you live in a city, just extricating yourself from your surroundings and getting into a place where you can get fresh air, you can get oxygen up to your brain. You can kind of let all of that thinking settle out and flush out. I love to think about like the river of thinking passing through and how when it's feeling crazy up there, the, the, what we need to do in that moment is let ourselves calm down. Because what I see so much is someone gets up in their head and they're panicking and they want to think their way to an answer as if I just think more. Come on, Allegris, think with me. Can you come and think with me? Help me, help me, help me. And I'll be like, okay, let's go on a hike or go on a walk and then we'll talk in 15 minutes. But I want to figure it out. Okay, I know you do. Let's go out. Let's do something different first. And then we'll come back and talk about it. And what happens, and I suspect you've experienced this, your listeners have experienced this, you give yourself that grace, that moment of like, okay, I'm just going to, I'm going to let it go. That 10, 15 minutes later, a day later, whatever it takes, all of a sudden it's like, oh, I'm not panicking anymore. And oh, actually I could do this and this. So that's a good one. A woman who I know, she's like, does gardening count? I'm like, well, does it? I don't know. And she's like, yeah, actually when I garden, it really settles me down. So getting our hands dirty, I think there's actually some more research coming out showing the efficacy of like getting your hands dirty and working outside to help quiet thinking. I think that writing like the morning pages we were talking about is a wonderful exercise to ground you down. I like reading when I'm way up in my head. I'll be like, just get me into a book for a little bit. I think everyone knows what their sweet spot is and their thing that helps bring them back down to that centered place. For some people it's cooking, right? Let me just get in the kitchen and cook a good meal, riding your bike, getting out and just letting yourself drop out of the thought space for a bit, knowing that you'll be able to pick it back up when you're ready, but to let it slow down first before making decisions or trying to solve a problem. Yeah, the rumination part of panicking is really hard because you start winding yourself up and you start spiraling. And all of those activities you mentioned have the opportunity to bring you into the present moment so that you have to focus on something else. But yeah. it's like sometimes for me, if I go for a walk, it just gets worse. Like my brain just starts like winding up even more. But doing things like you mentioned cooking or for me, like technical mountain biking or yoga or doing things where if you actually lose focus, like something is going to go wrong and you'll actually know immediately and get that feedback. I think that helps bring into the present moment and just saying here and now, instead of letting your brain spiral into the future. Yeah. You know what a really interesting one is that I love is I love assigning chores. Mm -hmm. And I have a number of stories from clients, like one client I'm thinking of, she had reached this crossroads in her business and she was trying to decide what to do next. And she was like, I don't know what to do. What should I do? When should I, you know, it's date sensitive. What should I do next? Should I do this? Should I do that? And she really wanted to figure out. And I said, what I want you to do is I want you to go do some chores. I want you to like, just go clean your bathroom or something. And she was a bit reluctant. She was like, but I want to know the answer. And I said, I know. And <laughs> you, you've, you've signed on to try things a different way. So I want you to go just do something totally <laughs> different. And it was either within that day, within a few hours, or at the latest, the next day, I received a message from her saying, Allegra, I was scrubbing my bathtub and I figured out what to do about my question about my problem because to try and come up and that's, that's a misconception too, that like, especially if we're 
we're doers and we're used to creating from a place of like a high revved mind, we've equated the two. We're like, well, I've done a lot of great stuff being really stressed out, right? So it's okay that I'm stressed out. This is how I operate. Hmm. And we've lost touch with how the machine really works, which is that your best thinking is going to show up whether you're stressed out or you're relaxed. It's been there since you were born. It's like a hot spring or a thermal vent. Like those bursts of wisdom and creativity and problem solving and solutions, they're bubbling up all the time. And we're just used to like spending all of our time up in the waves, swimming around and like occasionally spotting one of those little bubbles. And like, oh, there it is. <laughs> But when the truth is, is that if you're willing to kind of drop down below the surface and kind of sink down to just where it's quiet and calm, you're going to spot those ideas so much more quickly and easily than if you were in this agitated state. But again, for some people, that agitated state becomes a habit. It becomes the norm. And it can be very hard to let go and to believe that they can stop thinking about all their stuff and still figure it out. I'm laughing and making faces because that describes me very well. Like I definitely function in a highly agitated state. I'm not agitated in a negative way, but just like a high energy state. And I think that people who are used to being on the go and just like go, go, go high energy, you got to do this and you become very reactive. And, and it's also really hard to make the time to slow down. But something that just along the lines of what you just said has been helpful for me and a morning habit that I've started doing is Mm -hmm. the first thing I do in the morning is I spend 10 minutes cleaning up my house a little bit so oh, instead of like that's cool. immediately like going to my phone or my computer like I'll check my phone but not for very long and then I'll just like make my bed and then I'll just like pick up here and there and then I've noticed like on the days where I do that I feel really good going into mm. my day in the days that I don't do that I don't feel as good so like that could be something fun for people to try is do some sort of menial task and I think that does help create that space sure and I think that's When it comes to like ideas, I've seen two, I've realized this the other day that a lot of times people approach ideas or projects or things they want to do from a place that I call overing and there's overthinking and there's overdoing and both of them can contribute to stuckness, to overwhelm, overthinking tends to lead to analysis paralysis, overdoing and overthinking just leads to overwhelm and, and burnout. And so For some people, especially if they're overdoers, right, they're constantly in that high energy. The idea of slowing down is like terexidifying. It's one of my, it's my word. I love it. It's like, it's exciting. Yeah, that'd be amazing. But it's also really scary. And that's always an interesting pocket to play in when I'm working with someone kind of like you're describing. It's like, but I'm so used to going fast that the idea of slowing down feels really, really edgy. On the flip side, I sometimes work with people who are really good at being kind of low and slow, but they want to start taking action on something. And for them, the speeding up part feels edgy. And I I love playing with both parts because both directions are transformative. So like the people that feel overwhelmed and burnt out, what are some things that they can do to feel better? I forget the formal name. It's like the quadrant of competence or something. But I was reminded of this a few weeks ago because so in the first, imagine a square with four, right? Divided into four fourths. And in the lower corner is unconscious incompetence. And essentially what that means is we're not even aware of how we're sabotaging ourselves. We're not even aware of what we're not doing 
that can, you know, to improve ourselves or our lives. We move from unconscious incompetence to conscious incompetence, right? Where we suddenly become aware of the things that we're doing that might not be aligned with what we want, right? That we recognize is, I know I shouldn't overschedule myself, but I'm still overscheduling myself. Or I know I should get more sleep, but I'm not getting enough sleep. That's conscious incompetence. What happens, I find, is that we want to move from that place of conscious incompetence to unconscious competence. But that means we essentially want to just be able to do it. Mm -hmm. That we think that we're, we equate becoming aware of where we struggle and where we could like practice and improve upon our life or whatever we want to improve upon, that we should just suddenly be able to do it. That it should be easy. It should become unconscious, like riding a bike. Like for you, riding a bike in a certain environment, you are unconsciously competent about it. It's embodied within you. It's second nature. You've practiced hours upon hours and years upon years. It's just a part of who you are. You don't have to think about it. But what we've forgotten is that third step. And the third step is conscious competence. That's where practice happens. That's where we say, I don't know how to do this, but I'm going to try it. The most visceral example I can give you is like, you know, I finally committed to a more consistent yoga practice and yoga practice is exactly that. And I'm starting to see it because the teacher who I work with is really into alignment and like fine tuning of the body. And I love that because I want it to be a strengthening exercise. And I've been now going two to three times a week now for a couple of months. And I'm finally, you know, at the beginning, she'd be like, okay, you're in your downward dog, turn your thighs towards the back and twist your elbows in and your forearms in your, I'm trying, like, what is she talking about? I can't even concept. And I'm so it feels like so much work in my mind because I'm consciously competent. I'm having to think about getting better. Mm -hmm. Now, today I even caught it. I went into a downward dog and automatically felt my upper arms turn in and my forearms turn out. And I was like, oh my God, there it is. It doesn't require as much work. Mm -hmm. So that, to come back to your question, because this is all related. <laughs> For the person who says, how do I deal with less overwhelm? The first thing I think is to be willing to be consciously competent to know that it's going to feel forced and contrived and like effort to slow down, that you're not all of a sudden going to say, I want to be less overwhelmed. So I'm going to leave my phone at home. That's going to, it's just going to feel awkward and weird to be willing to sit down and journal or to be willing to sit down in the middle of the day and just take 10 deep breaths. And it's going to feel weird to start saying no to stuff, right? To start trying to create space in your calendar but if you're willing to do that, then you can start doing the stuff that will create more of that space in your life and in your mind. Yeah, I think a lot of times it comes down to feeling guilty for taking time for yourself, mm -hmm. like feeling guilty because I should be working harder or feeling guilty because why do I have the right to just like take a nap or whatever you're doing to relax? Yeah. And I think that our society has championed the hustle so much. Oh my gosh, so much if you're not hustling and you're not working every single second, then you feel less than. Yeah. And I think it's a really hard place to be to take that downtime and not feel less than. I couldn't agree more. There's definitely this culture of getting more done, making things happen. And we've come to confuse busyness with productivity and 
you know, that feeling of being on vacation has become the exception and not the rule. It's like, well, once a year I let myself shut down. And then what usually happens is while we're shut down, we have our best ideas. And we think it's like a fluke, like, wow, that's not how it usually is. <laughs> but that's actually just tapping into how the system works. Mm-hmm. Is it the ideas are there all the time? It's just, it's not that anyone can do more than anyone else. It's that they know how to show up to it with a quieter mind and from a more centered place because they've made that an integral part of their practice and their routine. I mean, you don't have to read the biographies of many exceptional and accomplished people to see that within their schedules were very disciplined times of doing nothing, of going on long walks, of completely shutting down. And we don't look at that person and say, well, they were unproductive. It's like, no, perhaps they were able to accomplish what they accomplished because they were willing to carve out so much space for their minds to just settle and quiet and to tap back into to that innate wisdom. Yeah, I think it takes a lot of courage to do that. Like I brought this book up many times on the podcast because it's one of my favorite books, but it's called Peak Performance by Brad Mm. Solberg and Steve Magnus. And they've actually been a guest on the show. Oh, awesome. But like the whole theme of their book is have the courage to rest. Mm -hmm. And I tell myself that on a daily basis and I still don't always listen to it. But I think that we go through these phases where there's intentional imbalance, like hopefully the imbalance is intentional. And then phases where you say, okay, like, I'm just going to recharge my batteries now. But I think that even that is dangerous because then you get into a phase of burnout and then recovery and then burnout and then recovery. And really it would be a lot more productive to just lower the levels a little bit more and then not have to need that extreme recovery from the burnout. Definitely. Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit at the, now that we're getting close to the end here about some of your travels, because I saw that you went to Nepal and you did. did? Yeah. So first of all, I want to hear about Nepal because that is a deeply spiritual place where walking outside, you definitely can find some clarity. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I went at a time. So I studied wildlife, fish and conservation biology at college. I went to UC Davis. And so really my career in the years following that were focused on being outdoors, wildlife surveys. And I had this opportunity, I met this guy who was a wildlife trapper, he would trap animals to collar them and radio collar them for research. And he had been invited by a doctorate student to go to Nepal and invited me to come and assist. So it was this amazing opportunity. And so I really took advantage of it. And like I stopped in Thailand along the way just to like experience that part of the world. And then when we got to Nepal, we had a couple weeks before we really hunkered down and did our work. So we hiked through Annapurna and that was just incredible. And then we traveled south to Chitwan, which is in the southern part of the country. And we were just out every day. You're on the backs of elephants, you know, crossing rivers and seeing hippos, not hippos, just seeing all these other wildlife around. And we were trapping civet cats and it was incredible. Yeah. And then like, what did you do in the Peace Corps? So in the Peace Corps, I was there again to do environmental development. I was assigned, I lived in Bulgaria and it was actually when I was in Nepal that I found out that I had been accepted into the Peace Corps in Bulgaria. And I was like, where's Bulgaria? And I remember riding my bike to like the local bookstore and trying to find a map and figuring out where it was. And so when I got back from Nepal in December and ended up going to leaving for the Peace Corps, I think the following June. And I was there for 27 months. I worked for a nature park there and just helped them secure grant money so they could develop more programs for the community. And I worked with some women's groups in my town and it was an incredible experience. It was unbelievable. So how has that led you to where you are today? 
Well, like I've said before, like I'm a big fan of those ideas that just light people up. And I think it's because I really have, I don't know where it came from, but this spirit of loving to try things that you don't really know what's going to happen. <laughs> you know, it was. That's adventure. Those, like, yeah, that's, that's what adventure I love this, is. Yeah. I love the spirit of adventure. I love road trips, like just kind of not knowing exactly how things are going to turn out. I find that incredibly invigorating. And I advocate on the behalf of those kinds of projects for people because I know how transformative they are and how they really show us what we're capable of and the potential that we have. Not because we need those things to be happy, but because we're alive and you know, I like just speaking up on the behalf of ideas. Like, well, why not? Why not give it a shot? Especially because sometimes when we look up at the top, you know, a lot of times people get stuck because their idea feels so big. It's like staring at the top of a mountain. And I love the moment of being like, okay, that's great. Like that's a direction to walk towards, but let's just look back down at your feet. Like you don't have to be at the top of the mountain tomorrow. Are you willing to take the first step? And that question can really be a game changer. You have so many amazing analogies and visualizations and I just <laughs> want to write them all down. I'm like, this is awesome. I love metaphors. I'm like a metaphor person. So you also are a teacher, right? I was a teacher. I mean, I love teaching. I love leading workshops mm -hmm. and I love kind of sharing all of these ideas. It's something I'm mm -hmm. passionate about, but I was a teacher. Formerly, I taught middle school science in the Bronx and then I taught high school science in New Rochelle, New York, before retiring to have my kids. And when did you start the life coaching? I got certified in life coaching, I think it was six years ago, it's either five years ago or six years ago. And it just was this natural, after coming off of my 20s and having kids, really kind of being in this habit, in this pattern of changing things up every couple of years, it was a bit scary for me committing to this new path because I was like, Oh my gosh, like, is this the right fit? Am I going to want to switch again? Like it was terrifying for me. And I remember having a conversation with someone and she pointed out, you know, all of a sudden, just based on my conversation with her, I was able to see how it was all connected. I like looked behind me and suddenly saw all of the dots connecting. I was like, Oh, this is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing next. And um, that was a really awesome moment. It's happened a couple of times since then where I, I can't see how it's all fitting together until I'm suddenly looking backwards. And I, I love that. It's That was Steve Jobs has some amazing quote about that, about this idea that we can't see how it's all connecting ahead of us. We can only see how it connects by looking back. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, I have one more question to ask you if you have time. Do you have time? Yeah, sure. Basically, I want to talk about how people can make changes in their life particularly when it comes to business, changing their job, changing their career and or moving when they have kids, because a lot of the people I have on the show, they don't have kids or we don't talk about having kids and how, because people are like worried about how those decisions are going to affect their kids and they don't have as much available free time to make those changes. So how do you help people that have kids and help them allocate the time and the resources to make those changes? Well, I think, you know, it's a very personal decision. I mean, there are families with children who are traveling the world in a van. Like I look at some <laughs> of those things and I'm like, that's amazing. Having children definitely brings this different element into the decisions. I'm, I'm no longer making decisions for myself. I'm really processing my choices through a filter of also wanting to tend to and nurture the lives of my kids. And there is that added layer of 
just consideration and responsibility and priorities. And that really, uh, it simply just adds another layer of consideration to decisions that people are trying to make. I don't want to say it's no different than any other consideration, but it just changes the lens in my position and the way I've experienced through which I make choices for myself because I just have that peace of mind that I'm considering. And it's also kind of, I have to say on a, on kind of a logistical level, it's really cool working with moms sometimes because there's this mutual understanding that things could change in an instant. Like sometimes I'll be coaching a mom, we'll be in the middle of a session and her kid will start screaming and she'll be like, I'm so sorry. And I'll say, Oh, I totally get it. Like, <laughs> that's why, like my kid could start screaming any minute. So there is that level of understanding of, you know, oh, I didn't get any sleep last night. Like, I know. So, yeah. or if there are last minute emergencies that come up, that's, it's, there's that shared understanding. But as far as like, for your audience who's listening, who are parents who are considering changes or trying something new, sometimes, and I've recently discovered this, what it, all it takes to get something in motion is having the courage to say it out loud. A lot of people are sitting on ideas of things they want to try or do that they don't even say. It's a big idea, but it feels really little. But when they say it, it's like cracking open. I don't know. I picture a geode just like opening up and all of a sudden it's like everything's shining out. It's like, oh, my gosh, there it is. It also ties in, too, to that whole thing of like it can feel so monumental that we don't even take our step back. So what would be the very first thing? Like, perhaps that idea is not so far off. And yes, there are these other variables at play because we're keeping our children in mind and, our, you know, but that's not a reason to not make something happen. It just perhaps changes the course we follow mm -hmm. to reach that goal. And my last question is, how do people deal with the frustration? Like, how do you deal with the frustration whenever you have a plan and then it gets messed up because your kid needs your attention? Because I'm sure that's frustrating. I bring it back to the place of choice. You know, I bring it back to the place of choice and what I choose my priorities to be in any moment. I also think it's good to have just clear, to not be afraid to say what you need and to ask for help. You know, we can get ourselves sometimes, especially for the primary caregiver of thinking like, well, it's all on me. It's all on me. I got to figure it out. I got, it's too much to figure out. When in reality, if we were just willing to ask people to help us, we could actually create more space for ourselves than we even realize that we have. And embracing that spirit of like, what if I didn't have to do it all? What if actually my partner is willing to do more than I think they're comfortable doing? Or what if that friend of mine who keeps saying, oh, I'll help anytime really means it. Mm -hmm. And I just need to kind of get over my fear of what it could mean to ask that person something mm -hmm. for a favor or to exchange services like, I'll watch your kid on Tuesdays, you watch my kid on Wednesdays. All of a sudden, we have this day of time that we can play with and explore and, and investigate and experiment within. So it is part of my fabric that I just, you know, I do these whiteboard sessions with people. And when throughout the winter, I put on the bottom of kind of the material I send before we do it, I say, just so you know, I have kids. They're my priority. And if there's a snow day, it could really tweak things up. And so I'm putting that out there up front so that you understand that this could be a variable. Mm -hmm. Or we might be in the middle of a session and my phone could ring and it could be my kid's school and I might have to go. But I want you to know that and that I will make it up tenfold if that ends up happening. But that's just part of who I am and the fabric of who I'm bringing to the table. And 100% of the time, whether it's another parent or not, there's complete understanding about it simply because I've been transparent. Because from the beginning, I've been like, just so you know, this could be something. Mm -hmm. And across the board, everyone's like, cool, no problem. And it takes completely takes off that pressure. 
if I have to cancel a client session because my kid's sick, right? That unexpected thing comes up. It gives me permission to not stress out about it so much and to be able to honor both my role as a parent and the relationships that I have with my clients. Yeah, that's a really strong alignment of expectations. <laughs> oh my God. It, turn expectations into agreements and there's never a problem. You just put them out up front. <laughs> I love it. Well, if people want to get in touch with you or maybe even join your Facebook group, like what's the best way to do that? So my main website is AllegraStein.com. If you just go to that, you can kind of read a little bit more about the kind of work I do. And there's a button that says explore. And that'll take you to a page that'll just show you where to find my Facebook group, where my Instagram is. If someone's listening who's really lit up by this and they're just like, I just want to talk. I'm a big fan of cutting to the chase. I'm a big fan of just like developing relationships and connections with people. If you go to AllegraStein.com forward slash connect, there's, you can set up a time to talk for us to have an actual conversation. I love conversations and connecting with people for real. So I'd love to invite anyone who's listening, who wants to set aside, you know, 20 minutes just to kind of dive into the stuff they're working on. I would love to invite anyone who wants to take advantage of that to do so. It'd be great. Cool. And just remind everybody about the morning pages challenge that we brought up. Ah. And thank you so much for coming on the show, Laker. It was really great to get to talk to you for a longer period of time. And I think that you have some really great nuggets for people to take away. Thank you. I really appreciate you inviting me on. It's really been a pleasure. What'd you guys think of that episode? I love feedback from you guys. Send me an email if you want to see shorter episodes, longer episodes, different types of topics, or if you even have ideas of people you would love to hear. I love accepting feedback. So make sure that you send me an email on my website. That is sonyalooney.com for those of you who aren't aware. Big thanks to our podcast sponsor, Kuat Racks. Make sure you check out Kuat Racks at Kuat Racks, K-U-A-T racks.com. I saw a lot of them whenever I was in Arkansas because they are a company from the Midwest. They are a local brand and they just have a really fun vibe about them. Thanks so much to those of you who are supporting my work financially on Patreon. That really helps a lot. And hopefully some of you received your postcard with the stickers that I sent out. The Plant Power Tribe Facebook group is really taking off. We have over a thousand members and you guys are all invited to join. It's free and all you have to do is search Plant Power Tribe with Sonia Looney in Facebook and everybody's welcome. You don't have to be a vegan. You don't have to eat 100% plant-based. You just have to want to add in more healthy foods into your diet. And it's a really cool spot because people share lots of information. It's not just me posting every single day. There's just a really great community feel and I, I've actually learned a lot from people on the Facebook group. That is it for this week. I hope you guys enjoyed the show. Thank you again for listening. It means the world to me and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week. <laughs>